Hello, everybody. Welcome back uh, to the Handmaid's Podcast. We are uh, recapping and discussing episode four today, Other Women. Oh, my God. Other Women. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, where, where do we even start with this? We um, start at the beginning? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We're going to back up just a little bit to lead us in, and we have some a little bit of commentary and feedback from uh, people on our Facebook page and things like that about episode three, which was baggage. Um, about how June gets recaptured, and a lot of it has to do with her headstrongness. Um, Betty Lou T from New York says that uh, she wants to slap June <laughs> for being stubborn and uh, willful. And uh, last week after that episode, she uh, proposed uh, that the entire Kano family is not dead, which is true and not true that we find out it is yeah and i think uh Kay would very much agree with the wanting to slap yeah i think that's uh that was a very popular sentiment and amongst people that uh, watched last week's episode um and then uh i had posted on the facebook page uh what a condensed version of what i called the hierarchy of gilead women and so first i had put wife married to a commander previously the sons of Jacob, so whoever their wives were when they were sons of Jacob, before they became commanders of Gilead. Then below that, I had placed aunts who train and maintain the handmaids. They're pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Then I put the handmaids were after that. They're single women who are fertile um, and or um, they're fertile but immoral. So they're fine with being subjugated because it's sort of their like punishment on your making amends now by serving Gilead as a handmaid. Then after that, I had put Marthas, who are single slash good women who are infertile. So like Rita, we had discussed, she's older, so probably not fertile anymore due right. to age. Probably. Um, and then we discovered the Econo people, the Econo wives, married. They can be fertile, but are low-ranking women who were good women. So, uh, quote-unquote. And so, what that made me think of was um, certain women, like, when we flash back to season two, episode one, that one woman who was really super mom-judgy to June. Like, women like that who were sort of already part of that culture who they deemed were good people, good Christians, whatever you want to call it. Right. they are sort of this um, labor class, right? Bread truck guy. Right. Um, but Martha's are also kind of considered within that working class, but Martha's live within the household. Um, and then, of course, at the very, very bottom, on women and Jezebels, who are infertile mm-hmm. and or bad women. So there was a lot of sort of discussion over, you know, how we, how we place people in this um, society and um, Lindsay S pointed out that Jezebels uh, even if they were fertile are um, temperamentally unsuited to the role of handmaids so when they become uh, Jezebels they're surgically sterilized which oh. I was like oh yeah that's a good point that, that's like a small detail I believe in the books that okay. uh, we missed so if you're wondering about that, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth T. Uh, from New York uh, said, I wonder if handmaids would go lower. And I sort of agree. I, I said that handmaids are like sort of hard it's to debatable. place. Because culturally, they're very like 
what is that like they're held hi- up? Yeah, on I was a gonna pedestal. say culturally they're highly regarded within uh, the high level community, but they're tortured worse than than many other positions. Yeah, on women and Jezebels, like to keep them in line. Right. They're sort of like in terms of how they're treated. Like I guess on women are definitely But the moment that they're the pregnant, lowest of the they're low. treated like fucking royalty. That is, yeah. So I mean, they're, I I would still beg to I mean, I would say that where you place them is accurate because, you know, even though they are tortured, the moment they're pregnant, they are royalty to everyone that's around them. Right. Like, I feel like um, what's, what's very mysterious about this Econo people uh, introduction that we got in the last episode is that we see Econo wives and they have children. They have these little nuclear family units. Yeah. And so I think you had mentioned wanting to know more about them and, uh, and how that within that um, class works because if they're fertile, would they not be subjugated to handmaids in order to populate? But right, I was so confused. You still need, like we also said, that we, you need a nation. You need people to drive the bread trucks. You need seamstresses. You need people to bake the bread and yeah, all so, those Yeah, so I mean, it makes sense to let fertile women at that level yeah, still be fertile and do their own thing. Have this sort but, of microcosm. But I'm still curious people. if there's like rules, sort of like in China, like there's the one child rule. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they have a one child rule or if they have like a, you have to have at least this many at this point in time or right. or maybe if they follow um what the bible does like if anyone pays attention to uh, that show that was 19 and counting and now i think it's 21 and counting like they keep having babies um oh, like the reality show like a right TLC reality right show but they follow the bible to a point where um every time you have a child you have a mourning period after a boy it's a 30-day mourning period after a girl it's a 60-day mourning period i might be getting those numbers wrong but after that mourning period then you start trying to have a child again interesting i wonder if they have to follow those rules or like possibly i'm just curious what the rules might be because then it would just be like they're self-populating or repopulating their own class which gets me to um uh liza m uh from new york also um says uh i have been thinking about whether the society is necessarily hierarchical wives marthas and econo wives look down on handmaids for example I think the main thing about the different groups is that it divides society into a form of caste system where they have very little interaction with members of other groups, which is totally great point, Liza. Thank you for bringing it is that and up. It isn't, though, because, I mean, right. they do very still have similar. interaction. Yeah, they do. And uh, for those not uh, familiar with a caste system, the most... Uh, isn't India a popular? Yeah. Of that? yeah, I don't know if the word is popular, but the most well-known one, well-documented one, is uh, the one from India. Mm-hmm. But it also is pres- uh, present in a lot of Southeast Asian countries. What's the terminology for the people at the very bottom? Um, they are uh, called Shudras. So at the very top are uh, Brahmins, B-R-A-H-M-I-N-S, and they're teachers, scholars, and priests. Then Kshatriyas, warriors and nobles, Vaishyas. Farmers, traders, and artisans, and the Shudras, S-H-U-D-R-A-S, laborers and service providers. And if I'm saying those incorrectly, someone please email me or voicemail me and say them incorrectly. Tell me the proper way to pronounce it. She tried. (laughs) Yeah, so laborers and service providers are sort of at the bottom. And then you have teachers, scholars, and priests, which is... um, 
Well, okay, but if you top. go with that concept, then, I mean, technically handmaids would be at the bottom because mm-hmm. they are a, a service labor, provider. Yeah, service provider. True, true. Very true. And then so, like, you would say, like, the commanders and, and no, are, like, nobles, so they're sort of, like, second to the top. Right. Which sort of takes out... Who's at the top? Do we know? There aren't really teachers, scholars, and priests. The, the one who's the closest, I feel like, is Commander Price. He sort of is holding, like, the moral... Right. The moral reins I mean, at and the you moment. even see in this episode that... Uh, Commander Wallerford has to get permission from the council. So maybe the council is the top, technically. Yeah. I think they're they're a little squished. Yeah, for it's sure. It's hard to say for it's sure. It's very hard to say. And then I had but good know, analogy. It, it is definitely because you know a caste system is a valid point. Um, because like there are different people who are definitely at the bottom. There are people definitely at the top, and there are people who are in the middle. Like. And that middle is a little bit squishy. In the middle is definitely very squishy because I was pointing out that uh, wives and aunts are at the top, but the aunts have to listen to the uh, wives to what an extent. And then in this episode, it's kind of flipped where Aunt Lydia sort of has the upper hand and Serena sort of has to go along with what Aunt Lydia says. But that's only because the handmaid is pregnant. And that's under Aunt Lydia's purview is to protect and maintain that pregnancy. And like I said, like I think... I think maybe the rules are standard until someone's pregnant and then stat or like positions change. Yeah. Like whose weight means more changes the moment someone's pregnant. I totally agree with you. I think that's. So that's it's kind of like a weighted caste system, yeah. if you will. And then um, just a point about the Martha and O'Connor wives that um, Liza's comment made me think about was that um, Martha's live within the household of the commanders. And so commanders yes. are the elite. So. They might uh, possibly have more status because they're tied to the the power and status of their commander. That's one possibility. Um, yeah, but they're a service provider, aren't they? But they are still service provider. But right. they also like run a household of what I imagine. Um, I forget the female uh, equivalent of this of like a of the the head butler. Yeah. You know, like the who runs the staff. Right. You can basically. have the head maid, the head butler, the right. the administrator, whatever you want to call them. But I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, so supposing if a lo- very large household had more than one Martha, then there might be one who is more in charge of the other. It'd be really so. cool to see a mansion in the show and like see how that was run. Yeah. Especially we do get a little bit, we get the return of, uh, Amanda Burgos, uh, Rita in this episode, uh, which is a smaller household. I feel like most households have one, but I think, um, Commander... Uh, not Price, but the one that got in trouble and had his hand cut off, the one that had the oh, baby. I don't remember. Um, the one that was previously Janine's commander. They oh, have yeah, a pretty large estate. They did, didn't they? They have they? a very large estate. So I wonder It was really pretty. It's very pretty. And you, I always notice, too, the, how dark it is in the Waterford's house. This is like a side point. It's always super dim in there. Right, and that other house was really bright. They had very so bright. much open light coming in. Right. And it's also, too, I think, It might just be an architectural thing. Very true, because in, I think, the end of A Woman's Place, I'm ta- going all the way back to episode six of season one, when they sort of commandeer the street. So they've moved into this new house. So they've commandeered these houses. These are not originally their own. Right. So they've vacated this area, and they've reassigned uh, all of the commanders and wives to a... Um, particular house, so maybe they chose. Maybe this is the style that speaks to Serena Joy, that this is the cottage-y yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, it's hard to know which one it is. 
Yeah, or like they were assigned based on their status. Obviously, that giant mansion is indicative of someone who has, you know... More money, more, more status. Money, more I mean, status. It's, it's really hard to gauge. Yeah. I don't know if those homes were explicitly by their level or if it was what they chose or, you know, if it's what right. they had before. I yeah. mean, it's really hard to tell. I mean, you also have to think, too, that... um yeah, and it could be a, like a directorial choice too, like sort of speaking to the personality of each Maybe. of those households. Yeah, because I mean, lighting and um, you know, scene color is definitely a huge thing when it comes to cinematography Absolutely. and uh, symbolism. Uh, you watch any movie, and there's going to be different uh, cinematic choices. You know, if you're going to choose a different color for a different scene to have a different tone. You know, so it might be that maybe the Wallingford's home is just a bit darker. Yeah. A bit darker in tone for every reason around it. Yeah, for sure. Like always, always I feel like that sort of like suffocatingness. Yeah. I feel like that's what it is. And it always looks a little bit smoky. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Sorry, that was a tangent. But now that we've (laughs) wrapped up officially episode three baggage, we can get to episode four other women. So... At the end of episode three, of course, June gets dragged out of that poor plane. That oh my god, Cessna. I, so I remember at the very end of this like recap moment that they have at the beginning, uh, and she's pulled out, and I was like, "This isn't gonna be a good one." <laughs> like I remember <laughs> yeah. we had this debate last time, and I was like, "Oh, yeah. you never know," but it just hit me really quickly. I'm like. No, she's going back. Yeah, she's going back. Like immediately, I just before anything else happened, it just it just dawned on me like really quick second, like they're not going to be nice to us. And she is back at the red center. She's chained to the bed, like we had uh, seen before with uh, another handmaid. I guess okay, that other handmaid was not chained to a bed. She was chained to like two metal posts. Yeah, they're like in the ceiling, and I think her chains are like also on the floor. Yeah, she had better accommodations. (laughs) Let's (laughs) be real between the two. Like the other one was soy. This one, she's clean with like yes. a clean bed with flowers. 71 flowers. 71 flowers. She knew the exact number. <laughs> There's like four aunts, aunts uh, standing guard just watching her at all times. It's crazy. Yeah, she is under lock and key, this girl. Uh, um, and she's still remaining a lot of her defiantness because she's had this taste of autonomy and freedom you know my name oh my is June. you know fucking well what my name is yeah she Don't was like i am woman hear me roar um she was intense about it she was very not having anything it. else and she was fine Lydia. <laughs> yeah she really was even in her own way even you know dragged all the way back to the red center uh, aunt lydia says that if you know as if june doesn't go back to the waterfords because she has this choice if June doesn't go back, once the baby is born, she's, they're just going to execute her. Or she can go back and have the baby and have an opportunity to be a handmaid to another commander and do this all over again. Yeah, but I want to point out, in this moment, this was the first reference of the episode where Aunt Lydia looked at her and gave her a choice mm-hmm. and said, you can be June. Or you can be Alfred. You have two choices, and this is what each of them mean. Right. Like, she went on her level and just leveled right on out to her. Like, we're going to be real. I'm going to tell you what's up. These are your choices. I think what's so interesting to me of the style of both of these episodes, and this episode was directed by um, Carrie Skolan, which is the same director as um, episode three, Baggage. Carrie Skolan directs a a few more episodes, episodes, yeah, yeah, later in the season that we'll see. But the tone shift, like, 
I think we mentioned last week how the pace of this, it's like so much happens in one episode and they really mm. crammed it together. And here we're really getting back to these very minute psychological games that happens between all of these women in the household, all of the women in the mm-hmm. household, including Rita. And it really centers around uh, how this regime is so good at getting under people's skin by these conversations and torture. Okay, let's be real, though. This is a cult. Yeah. A cult goes by rules. Now, now while their initial like ingratiation of people is different than a typical cult, because a cult, you know, standardly, you find the outcast, that person that doesn't have a whole lot of friends or isn't close to their family, and you say, hey, want to come with us? Want to hang out? And it's their choice. Mm-hmm. And they come along, they hang out, they do their thing, and everything's happy hunky-dory. And then they say, hey, how about you stay a little bit longer? Oh, okay. They still have the choice to leave. Eventually, they get to the point where they don't want to leave. Right. And they're given the, they're given the distinct impression that they shouldn't. Not that they can't, but that they shouldn't. And then eventually, you know, uh, there's a differentiation between their before self and their now self. Mm -hmm. And that makes them stay. That is brainwashing Mm -hmm. at its truest form inside of a cult. Uh, It's very similar in concept to what they're doing here, but they're forcing people in. I mean, besides that, besides that part, they are doing the before and the after self. They're they're changing people's uh, status in society. They're changing where they all live and how they live their lives. They're, they're changing their names. They're, they're very much playing a psychological game, and it, it is a cult. It reminds me of another show I started watching recently, which is totally unrelated. It's called um, <laughs> The Runaways uh, yes! from Marvel. It's also on Hulu. It's a Hulu exclusive. And uh, one of the characters is sort of the daughter of the figurehead of this church, which is uh, parallel to uh, Scientology. Uh, She contends with uh, the beliefs that her family has created. They uh, take young people who are disadvantaged or, you know, sort of on the outs, and they say, oh, we'll give you a a safe space place to literally a cult, guys yeah so They're so just um, <laughs> you like superhero stuff and uh if you like the like marvel that, universe you like you'll marvel like universe stuff there is a hulu show called the marvel's runaways anyway no but it is you're right it is laid out the same way you know mm-hmm. finding the outcasts dragging them in but like with their own consent and then like manipulating them to stay yeah that's a cult i think uh this I wrote in my notes, Alfred has an opportunity. And uh, a some choice. really excellent cinematography in this episode where oh, she's God. contending with the red dress. Like, the dress is hanging, and she's just sitting there staring at it. And I just thought that's, like, it's so simple. They're not, she's not saying anything, and they it's so loaded. They do it, loaded. like, two or three times, too. Yeah, they do it a lot in this series as a whole, and also this episode. This one episode, yeah. And she's just, it's saying so much, and I just really love that scene uh, for how simple it is and for just how much is in it, and also, you know, testament to Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss's, you know, uh, acting abilities, as a, yeah. Uh, as an actor. So we're back at the Waterfords, and the Waterfords were like, oh, thank God you've been rescued from your kidnappers. And we're like, oh. <laughs> oh, my God. Can I just say how hard I laughed the first time they said that? I, was, I paused the show, and I was like, did that just happen? I rewinded and watched it three times. <laughs> it's just so, like, of course. 
And and June also has the same reaction. They're like, oh, of course. course. You would say I was kidnapped because on the outside, you can't just say, like, I willingly escaped and, like, almost and got away me. with it. I was like, inches away from the it, Canadian border. For real. For real. Like, ten minutes away, probably, from fully escaping. Even though that would have been a great story for them to be like, and we still prevailed to take her back. But, like, they didn't want to deal with no, that story. no. It's all about appearances here. Oh, of course. Um, so and then even if you, if you think about it, I'm sorry to cut you off, but no you know worries. that, you know, uh, last episode when she was with that family, you know, the bread truck driver's family and the woman, uh, you know, was giving her a lot of slack about how she's living her life and whatnot. Oh, yeah. And she like she didn't understand her life and how she could live that way. And, you know, we were talking about how. At first, I just thought she was a horrible human being for not being able to see someone else's point of view, because even though, you know, we all have our own biases, I would like to think that I'm relatively aware of other people's viewpoints, and even though I might not agree with them, I can see them and right. appreciate them. So that's why I got so frustrated. And then Kay made the point, you know, they, they're not told. Mm-hmm. They don't know. They don't know that they are basically told to do this. And that's why we laid out all the different levels of women and how they got to their positions yeah that's how that all happened but that's that she the way that she explains you know of course this is what they're gonna say is it's perfect because it lays out that everyone else in society all those economy people the way they're gonna see it yeah is what they're told and it's that she was rescued Mm -hmm. because we are great people right and it's not that she's being tortured and that she doesn't like her life and that she doesn't choose this and she wants to run away Mm Mm-hmm. They because all think she also, has a choice. Uh, information does sort of get out of Gilead to the other countries, which we still haven't really gotten to other than Canada. But, yeah. you know, we get a, we get a sense of uh, what's, what's happening in Mexico in season one from the trade delegation. Right. But, you know, so there's she, the, the ambassador from Mexico says, we hear these stories and I'm glad that you're telling me that they're not true. So the word does getting out, you know, things do get out whether you want them to or not. So them framing it like this is not only for themselves inside, for but everyone. definitely for, yeah, everyone outside. No one will talk. Speaking of talk, I mean, this is, June's really struggling with this, and mm-hmm. so she's like, you have been through a trial, Commander Waterford says, and yeah. she's just like, uh-huh. I'll, mm-hmm. That's so all she could say. <laughs> she's being really resistant to going back to her old patterns of speaking, and whether that's a choice or really, like, she just really can't contain herself. I think it's a combination of both. I no, think- I think she's still being that badass, I am woman, hear me roar, I'm not choosing to be here, and you're gonna know it. Yeah. Like, that's essentially what I'm getting from her the entire episode. And then uh, we go back to her room, and it's, like, just totally bare bones, like, literally worse than... Worse than before. Worse than before. And she looks out the window and... And this is the moment that Serena comes up. Yeah. And grabs her by the neck. Mm-hmm. Basically choking her up against the wall. And says, 92 days. Mm-hmm. 92 freaking days. Can I just say that was really helpful for the timeline that I'm making? Yeah. But other than that... <laughs> coming y'all i'm being very selfish it's coming uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm working on it guys we're working on it but uh, but the 92 days like she was she there, was away for a while that was all she could say it was 92 days and it was just the longest awkward nothing happening scene to just and very uncomfortable mm-hmm. to just watch this happen between you know and i think and People always argue with me over the, like Serena Joy and i'm like really guys like if you don't get that 
Serena Choi is just all about this baby. Like, this is the one thing in her life that she, has. That she really is is gunning for her entire her, her entire life so far that we've seen in in this series. She really, really wants this baby. So for her allowed. to know, for her to know, ninety two days, like that's what she was fixated on. Because I mean, they could have just gotten another handmaid, right? She could have, but she ha- she knew there was a baby in Alfred. And that baby, she she in her feels mind, it ownership. To her. Yeah. Yes. So just I just want to be really clear about like if you know want to know one thing about Serena Joy is this is her pure motivation is this baby. Absolutely, it really is, and it's really That's I think, all she really has right now. Although it's weird, did you notice that Commander Waterford, Fred, and Serena are like a little bit closer? They're a little bit more intimate. Yeah, because he had that moment with her in the study, and he he was like. You don't want her to go away. You need this time. Remember, this is about so you. tender with yeah. her. But and I felt like one, it was manipulation. So yeah, I wonder what that is about. And, I do. And she did say, you know, you said this was my choice. You said this was 100% my choice. And he was like, I did. And I mean it. Mm-hmm. And I, I believed him when he said that. Because towards the end of season one, he's very like, I don't give a fuck. What like, I say goes, right? Yeah, like, I don't care what you want. Like, yeah. this is what, I'm, what, what we're doing, and you're going to be okay with it. Yeah. But this time he was like, nope, this is your child. You get to choose, blah, blah, blah. Like, well, I mean, this... and, and let's lay out, though, that she did call him out and say, this isn't your baby. Yeah. This is mine. Because mm-hmm. it's literally not your sperm. Mm-hmm. And I made it happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this interesting new dynamic with them is interesting, and I wonder if we'll get to see more of that and where that stems from and what the motivations are. And I don't yeah. question Serena's motivations. I really do question Fred's I do too, because I don't know which side he's coming from. It could be manipulation. It could be tenderness. It could be, oh shit, she called me out. Like, I don't know. Because I feel, I'll say this over and over again, I feel like I've talked this to death, but I feel like no. Fred's <laughs> only genuine moment is when he's in the study and he's telling uh june that the only purpose women have is to have babies but and he believed it. it and he believes that 100 percent. and so i feel like that's his only genuine moment in the entire show but and when he's being very leery at jezebel's that that all goes with the whole thing but what really got me though was you know my in my head i keep going back to that one scene back in season one where i don't even remember what episode was but serena and uh, what's his name? Fred. Thank you, Fred. I should know this. It's Alfred. I should know this. But <laughs> Serena and Fred are in the theater and they're talking about the future and how things are going out and how, you know, she had an equal voice and she, you know, wrote a book and, you know, she was this advocate for everything that's going to happen and they acted like equals and yet none of that shows anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it keeps dawning on me that that one scene and I just I don't understand how it flows. Yeah. How they went from that to this and how how they both are okay with where well, I don't know if they're actually okay with it, but they're they're they've settled into this new reality. Yeah. For what it is. Yeah. And I don't understand how they got there. Yeah, I mean there is a chunk of time where we're focusing on June and the whole, you know, escape sort of plot line and, you know, I don't know how important it's going to be to figure to find out story wise how 
I mean, they, it found them, and then what happened between them in that interim? Maybe yeah. it'll happen in a flashback. I don't know that it's even important, but I am intrigued. But it is an evolution of their relationship. Exactly. Because the, you know, episode six that... Uh, I mean, even between season one and season two, there's an evolution there that we don't fully understand. Right. But to go from before everything went down to now, like, I'm just, I'm in awe. I've got nothing. Mm-hmm. I feel like episode six really centers around, like, their marriage of season one. And then so from that to the end of the episode where the rift is real, like they sort of had some reconciliation after episode six. And then by the end of season one, they're like very much adrift. So by the end of season one, you know, Serena's yelling at him like it's not your baby. She's very, you know, hostile towards him and not afraid. Yeah, no, they have no connection at that point. And then so here they're being very tender. So it is a large gap. Between where they were, end of season one, and, and two right now. Apparently 92 days makes a big difference. I suppose it does. <laughs> um, and also you have to wonder about Fred, like the handmaid not being in the house. Because mm. Fred doesn't have this other fixation to fixate on, and now they just have each Maybe other. Maybe they had more sex, dude. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe they did. So I kind of got the feeling, all up until now, that they hadn't really had sex in a while. Because remember, there were a few times... That she tried to, like, pursue him in season one. Mm-hmm. And he was just, like, pushing her off. and just not having it. Yeah, I think that it's a question unanswered from season one of whether that's allowed or not. I don't... Oh, see... Between I mean, the wives and husbands. I mean, I would assume that it's allowed. They're married. Why wouldn't they be but allowed like, to But, like, sex is not, sex? like, a sexual romantic thing anymore. Sex is, like, only for procreation. So maybe it's a... Maybe. I don't know. But yeah. even, even Fred was saying, you know, I need more touch. I need more intimacy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think in the last 92 days, they probably fucked. And that's probably why they're more tender to each other. <laughs> you know what they always say to some bad uh, bitches? Like, you probably just need to get fucked. Uh, I feel like a lot of sexual therapists would agree. A lot, uh, more intimacy. You know what I mean? You figure something I mean, out. I mean, that's, that's the one thing that I can think of that makes sense to why they're acting like this to each other. Mm-hmm. Is they probably were more intimate. Yeah. And that probably, oh. you know, spurred some extra emotions. Opened up some uh endorphins you know yeah. and some oxytocin flow and get that oxytocin and feeling you know and then you're just you're happy and you're loving <laughs> on each other and it's a good day <laughs> uh, it is called the love drug for a reason for, for real really <laughs> speaking of which you know we are wondering at the beginning of the episode now that she's back at the waterfords what's happened to nick and it's sort of a, a, a an answered question yeah. he she looks out to his little apartment thing and he he doesn't she doesn't see him, and so we're they're a little building a little anxiety and uncertainty there. You know um, what? I wasn't that upset about it. Oh, <laughs> it hurt me so, Abigail. Um, <laughs> and then so Rita is in the room, and she gives the letters back, and like, oh my god, we have been wondering what's so happened pissed. to these goddamn letters, and we're like, okay, like I'm mad, but also like I can't be mad. Oh no, I'm mad. How dare you? You fucked with everyone's life. Like, everyone had written a letter to get to somewhere, and you couldn't just pass it on. But who was she supposed to pass it on to? Because June does June point said out. someone was going to come. Someone's got, and nobody did. For two How months. How do we know that? For two months. Do we know that no one came, or do we... Because if the Or did she just reject it? Well, if the handmaid uh, isn't going out and doing the shopping, Rita was doing the shopping, so she would have been out. Yeah, she so would have had saying, plenty of contact with people. This is exactly my point. If if someone came up to her and she rejected it, that's Maybe. her being the asshole of the situation. You don't know what it was like. You're right, we don't. But you were out and about. You had the chance. 
I think guarantee you someone approached her. Rita's definitely alluding to like things are very tense and like not great in this house for uh, the staff. And you know, later on the episode during like the end of the baby. Oh, I thought she was talking like like, the entire community. I didn't think she was just talking about the house. I think she was definitely talking about herself. She don't you don't know what it's been like, but Um, she could be talking about the community because we do talk to um, uh, Robert again here. Yeah. So um, Nick does reappear, right? Yeah. Um, and so we, he's totally just like ignoring her. And Aunt Lydia is sort of like staying with them for the period. Like, yeah, I couldn't adjusting. remember. Like, is this normal when someone's pregnant for Aunt no. Lydia to hang out? No, I okay. don't. Then think this is so. a specific June Lydia thing. Yeah, definitely because June has been so dangerous and so um, problematic. So uh, we see the reemergence of um, some of these lines um, in the canon, sort of reappearing in different contexts. You know, June says to Serena, oh, as long as my baby, your, my, my baby is safe, your baby is safe, right? Right. Throws that back at her, and oh, the, she says, sorry, Aunt Liddy, after throwing up the um, smoothie, and Did so, she actually, like, force that? Because it didn't I look no forced. Idea. Okay. But, I mean, maybe then, she just drank it too fast, and she spit up on Right, I mean, she was told to kind of, like, drink more, and then, I mean. She did it out of spite, and then she ended up. And then she got sick. It's like my cat. But then Aunt Lydia, <laughs> but then Aunt Lydia wasn't even mad, she was like. Yeah. Okay, I'll make you another one. You need your you need your vitamins. Uh, if you're gonna play games with Aunt Lydia, well, I, mean, I don't think you it was gonna come game, strong. I th- yeah, I mean, maybe I mean, not I guess it could have been I a don't know. game, but they're definitely playing the psychology thing on each other. They're oh, trying God, yeah. to find where the point of leverage is, mm-hmm. and they're trying not to give each other the the end. And then, um, so we have a baby shower happening. Oh my god, yes, I was waiting for this moment. Okay. And did you notice the scene where, like, Rita drinks the champagne before she gives it to the wife? Yeah. And then, I had to rewind that for a second. I was like, is she t- tasting for point? Like, no, she's just drinking the champagne. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Um, like, you get it, girl. Yeah. Uh, so we're having this baby shower, which is super awkward, because all the handmaids are there and the wives. It's totally weird. Um, and of course, Alfred is sitting down, the only handmaid allowed to sit. Yeah. Uh, and then. Um, so they're all giving her gifts and, like, yeah. you know, they're talking about the stitching. Oh, what beautiful stitching. Oh, this is so nice. Oh, I knit that myself. Mm-hmm. When, like, I guarantee you she didn't knit it herself. Um, or maybe she did. I don't know. Maybe she's secretly talented and that's their, her only vice in life anymore. I don't know. What do I know? Um, and they're going back and forth. Then someone. Who was it that mentioned a kick? Oh, yeah. She was like, uh, I was really, one of the wives was one of the talking wives. about it. Yeah. And then June just like blurts out. Oh, well, yeah. No, no, no. Wait. It was Serena who said, I think it's probably, it, it's still too early for that. And then it was a moment of pause. Mm-hmm. Then June jumped in and said, I felt the baby kick for the first time. Was it this morning or last yesterday? night? Last night. And, and everyone, everyone is just. just- and Aunt Lydia, you see her just put her hand on the shoulder, like, don't you dare move. Do you need, <laughs> do you need a break? Do you need to get outside and get No, some I'm good, hair? thank you. <laughs> so Aunt Lydia is definitely there babysitting June. Yeah, no, it's 100%. definitely her sole purpose. And also she knows that this is difficult for having um, her back in the household for what it's like. She, and yeah, she, she has that moment with Serena, which I so appreciate. I really like Aunt Lydia. I really like Aunt Lydia and Serena's scene because we, we get that. Well, I just like Aunt Lydia, period. I do like Aunt Lydia, actually. Because, I mean, even though she's crazy and she fully believes, she's a true believer, as Kay would say. But, I mean, even though she's a true believer and she goes, you know, hell forward with everything, like, she's still, she cares. She, she does. She has a tender heart. Yeah. 
And uh, Aunt Lydia says, you know, I work with a lot of handmaids and wives. And Serena's like, mothers. Mothers. Yeah. So, again, reiterating the point here of, like, how Serena is framing this. Like, she is a mother. She's not just a wife who is acquiring this baby via surrogate. She is a mother. This is her child. And uh, she takes Serena's cigarette. She's like, it's bad for the baby. Um, oh, <laughs> my God. Like, I laughed oh so hard. I'm like, what are you even talking well, about? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, you know, if you're going to treat, if you say you're going to be the mother, if you're the ward of this. Oh, see, child, I thought she would have done that to any mother, not just absolutely, her. Absolutely. And I just think it's funny. Like, she's not carrying the baby. What, how does this affect the baby? It doesn't. What are you talking about? Yeah. Is it, <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole dichotomy about that, because obviously, you know. Probably should. I mean, like in a similar, in a similar, <laughs> in a similar breath, you know, when they're when uh, Aunt Lydia walks in on uh, June taking a bath, <laughs> I was like, "This is her one moment to be alone. You're really gonna be in the bathroom with her while she's bathing? Like that's inappropriate and quite uncomfortable." But she was like, "Remember to clean everywhere," and so she like cleans her armpits, and she yeah. was like, "That wasn't what I was talking about." And she was just like, "We don't want any of that nasty bacteria getting to the baby." I remember saying out loud, I'm like, that is not how that works. Yeah. And then she was like, and remember, the water's, or the water's getting cold. You better go to bed. The baby needs some sleep. I'm like, again, that's not how it works. Yeah. Like, does she not understand this? She does, but she's definitely babying and coddling all the people around her. It's very natural for her to do that. Until the moment when I mean, she it has is her to job. be. Yeah, it is her job. Until the moment she has to be rough. I think that's her her comfort zone is to uh, take care of the the people she's really supposed to be taking care of. Um, it's and like a then, dead mother. yes, exactly. And uh, at this baby shower, we have um, of Robert, who was the one who was sort of like her main contact person in May Day, and you know she had her arm burned, you know, after yeah. they had done the whole um, holding oh. the stones thing for and all of that. Well, I'm sure everyone had it, but she did it first. Yeah. Uh, Robert says that Mayday has gone silent, which is very concerning, and especially how... Do we ever meet Mayday? Not in the book. Okay, no. cool. Um, so we're wondering what's going on with the Resistance, if the Resistance is really squashed, or maybe just taken a few steps back and they're going to regroup. We'll I see. Say, I wouldn't be surprised if they, like, regrouped. Yeah, and so it is a push and pull, you know, with these Resistances against the regime. You know, they gained some ground, they now they've lost smart. a lot of ground. And so it seems like they've tracked down a lot of people in this at least in the chain of getting uh june to canada you know they that safe house she was supposed to go to um that was compromised you know they got the econo family bread truck guy so then we see off and off doesn't say anything and off robert says that they cut out off tongue for standing up to aunt lydia oh yeah ouch and then Aunt Robert says this thing. She's like, don't blame yourself. It's not your fault. And I was like, well, not that part. Yeah. So obviously there's some blame that the handmaids put on June slash off For initiating. For, for, some, for the things that have happened after uh, the fallout of after um, the failed attempt at the stoning of uh, Janine. Uh, yeah. Hopefully we'll, we're going to get back to them. Yeah. We'll get back to them. So then after um, that, we find out a little bit information of what's going on there um there's this prayer circle that happens and it's like a binding ceremony and it's like these cords and there's these celtic knots on them right and um i think you can enlighten me on all this yeah the this ceremony is not in the book okay because i was gonna say it's i made up for the show when i was watching it i was like there ha- i'm sure the dawn is gonna fill me in on this <laughs> because i don't know what's going on besides like a 
like a connection ceremony like i don't get yeah, it because you know how everything like everything that the, the pregnant handmaid is going through it's also supposed to be synonymous with like this is with the with the wife right so that it's happening to the wife because she's the point of prominence right um and so there's uh each of the wives are holding these uh red cords and there's celtic knots um and celtic knots are um very symbolic they're an ancient symbol um and they represent interweaving of the spiritual path, the flowing of time, and the movement, which is eternal, which I looked that up. Um, but it's a lot of Christian symbolism. It's a lot on uh, Christian texts. It's also on a lot of Islamic texts, like as decoration. Very Irish Catholic. Back, yeah, very uh, Irish Catholic. Um, dates back to the Byzantine Empire. But the, there's also a lot of um, these, uh, what's called endless knots. So if it's not particularly the Celtic design, what it is, it's, it's called an endless knot. And basically, it's, you know, it weaves through itself and it goes through the other end. So you have this knot, but it's... it's uh, Don't know where it starts. Yeah. Exactly. And ends. So that is also... Pres- these endless knots are also present in China's, Chinese culture, Buddhist culture, Tibetan culture. Um, and uh, so that when the handmaids sort of cross hands and they're holding it, so they're like all sort of joined in like one big circle. And, you know, and uh, Serena and uh, Alfred are in the center and they're praying. They're literally praying for let the little children come to me. And you can really feel Serena there really, like, really praying. Especially with that very last uh, repeat. Yeah, she's really praying. Um, And then at this point, we actually have a flashback for the first time in this episode. So up until now, this has all been linear. And we get a flashback to um, June being confronted by Annie. So this is a pre-Gilead. Annie, of course, was the wife of Luke before June and Luke had an affair. Okay, so up until this point in the series, I had no idea that Luke was married before. Did I just miss that entirely? Yeah, I was in um, Faithful which is episode seven i want to say okay well then i absolutely missed it because this happened i was like wait she's the second episode seven of season one um centers around uh faithfulness and uh i believe it is episode seven correct me if i'm wrong someone out there uh but uh she goes into how um nick and uh june are sort of having this relationship and then she's thinking about how when um she first meets luke and when luke introduces himself luke is married but okay. then they start having lunch and stuff together and See, they're I didn't realize he was married when they first met and so that was the whole thing of that episode leading up to when they get the hotel room is like is that push and pull of like they know what they're doing is mm. infidelity and they both know it is but they went through it anyway and then okay. by the end of that episode, you know, Luke is, you know, I'm in love with you. Right. And they, they want to get married and all of that good stuff. So I think this is further along in the relationship, um, this flashback we're having in um, season two, episode four. And Annie asks her to back off. And June says that they've been, that uh, Annie and Luke have been separated for months. And, you know, June comes home and Luke is telling off Annie. And um, June is having these doubts and like a lot of guilt. Um, and so it just adds this complex layer to their relationship because a, right. a, a lot until now, we definitely know that the relationship started on, you know, an infidelity, but it's progressed into what we recognize as this very intense, deep, genuine love between them two. And oh, especially absolutely. with 
their daughter, you know, they're very much about, you know, their family. It's, it's very beautiful. And to sort of like go back and throw this wrench in there is interesting because what it does get to by the end of the episode of using that guilt, I think, I think that is the main theme of this episode is guilt. It's dealing with guilt and exercising what is the point when you leave that behind or when is it that you use it to drive you you know what i mean right. like it's it's very interesting um it's a concept d- that they introduce deep deep concepts throughout the episode yeah so then after the shower um june talks about her own baby shower they're like collecting the present <laughs> and serena gets pissed and then slaps not her slaps the shit out of rita <laughs> that's why i was saying like oh, i, I think that's why it's like rita says it's been difficult because i think without I can uh, see that, you're right. Without June being there to sort They're of be the one everything to on take out on, yeah, which is really sad. It is. Like, I can't slap a pregnant woman, so I'm going to slap Rita. It's really sad. It is. And so... I still laughed. That's why I think going back to our conversation in the very beginning about where the Marthas lie sort of in this hierarchy. Like, yes, they're in charge of the household, but, like, they get beaten as much as the handmaids sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's really tough. They're like old school maids. So it is at this point that Aunt Lydia takes Offred for a walk. And stretch her legs. uh, And like keeps directing her in paths that she doesn't want to go. Like quite physically. And she's trying to talk sense into her. She's talking to her very, uh, what is that word? You know, like trying to, you know, reason with her. Right. And then they get to the wall. Okay, so in this whole like scenario where she's like, let's stretch our legs and literally physically moving her to different directions. Like this is where I want to go. This is where we're going. brings her to the wall that we've had plenty of people hung up in the past. They're always male. We've discussed this. And she says, do you recognize this person? This used to be a bread truck driver. Mm-hmm. And we all know who she's talking about before we even look at the body. And June is like emotionally, like physically quaking, emotionally raw I mean, she's pregnant, but even putting that aside, like, she, she's losing it right now. Mm-hmm. It's hitting her. Mm-hmm. You know that t- the back and forth uh, tug and pull that we've had between Aunt Lydia and June up until this point of trying to figure out what the tipping point is for either one? Aunt Lydia just won. Yeah. Remember really when did. I mentioned that uh, the first time that she tried to differentiate the difference between June and Alfred? This was the second time. Mm. This was the time that hit home. Yeah. This is the time where she said, June. What ran away. Mm-hmm. June tried to escape and go to Canada. Mm-hmm. June did this. June hurt this family. June, you know, caused all these deaths. June is the reason all these people are no longer alive and thriving and their families are tortured. Offred is kidnapped. Offred was taken away. We brought her back home. Offred is safe, healthy. And happy with her family. Alfred gets to live out the rest of her life. June does not. This is a, psych- a psychological m- device that people use in quotes to differentiate between before and now. Mm-hmm. This is the moment that June has that differentiation. And from here on out, she's different. She's given in. I think we were just talking about guilt, and I had written my notes. What Aunt Lydia says is that Alfred does not have to bear June's guilt. Yes, that was, that was exactly it. And you know what I think is interesting is that 
within that, like, this is a really fucked up situation. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, like, isn't that so indicative of a lot of, like, what you could do in life? Like, do you have to bear the guilt of what you've done before? Because obviously June bears guilt for having broken up this marriage even though they had a very fruitful and genuine love of with course. each other, of there's still guilt there. And then her desire and need and will to get out, to get back to her husband and possibly try and get Hannah back, you know, the things you do for human survival, any person would have done it. But through, but along the way, a lot of people have gotten hurt. A lot. Yes. Since right, right after... Um, they refused to stone Janine. All of then, the handmaids were tortured. Yes. Of Robert got burned. Of Glenn got her tongue cut out. Even though that wasn't necessarily June's Everyone thought they were going to be hanged. Fault. Yeah, everyone thought they were going to be hanged. Then uh, she, the bread truck driver gets hung dead. And then the Econo wife uh, is now a, set, handmaid. now a handmaid. Now she gets to understand what she didn't previously get. And uh, the child will never see their mother again, get placed with a different family. So this is a lot of guilt to bear for one person. But only June has to bear it. Right. Alfred does not. I think it's just so powerful because she's really giving her an out, like a freedom from the guilt that's before. But in order to do that, she literally has to become... The indoctrined person that this whole regime is trying to get these handmaids to be. And this is the moment that the brainwashing takes. Yeah. I mean, it's entirely possible she's playing along, but I don't think she is. I don't is. think she is because she I asked to stay. I think this is stay. genuine. She asks, you know, she, the whole household is there and she asks to stay. Yep. And everyone's just like really like, what the fuck? about this you know including fred fred feels very uncomfortable which is strange because you would think because you would think this is like exactly what he wants right right but the whole thing makes everyone super uncomfortable i was gonna say because he kind of liked her being a little bit defiant yeah and uh and he knows also too like those those days of the games are over Uh he's no longer going to jezebel's with her he is no longer having scrabble games none of that now she's a standard handmaid yeah she's just part of the staff right and then um, there's this really interesting scene at the end where Serena comes in and she snuggles the baby bump and talks to the baby, you know? Yeah. And uh, just this really tender moment she has with the baby. Like, I just really can't reiterate enough how connected and close, like, she feels that this baby is hers. Yeah. And it's interesting because she doesn't, like, acknowledge Alfred's presence at all. Like, it's just about it's that. It's really weird. It's very strange. And uh, probably on purpose, most likely. And then so to comfort herself, you know, Alfred goes to the closet where the Nolite Tebastardis Carbon Derm is scratched in. And then before she left that one day, she says, you are not alone. Or I think it was like, uh, I forget what episode it is. But she, when we uh, address Nolite Tebastardis Carbon Derm, she carves, you are not alone on on there as well. And uh, she goes because that's been a comfort to her. And it's been sandpapered off. Yeah, so she's just like everything Goodness. that has happened from the moment she It's all gone. Yeah, comes back, all of that. She there's really no remnant of it whatsoever. Except for I guess Nick. It is entirely possible though that she could them doing that, plus um Aunt Lydia's changing her making June change her, you know, uh perspective and what she associates with herself now. All of this 
I mean, it is brainwashing, but it's um, gaslighting. Yeah, because then at the end of this, she has nothing to pull her back to reality. It's gaslighting. Because she says that Alfred has a choice. And then so at that point, even though you're between a rock and a hard place and you make a choice, you've still made the choice, haven't you? Correct. And so that's, I think, at this point, you've made so many choices for yourself. And this choice really comes at the price of losing everything that she, like the the entire person that she believes that she's become. You know, and this like whole normal person, you know, considering in even episode two where she's at the Boston Globe office and she's has the, or, or even episode three, I'm sorry, um, she has like the the monument set up, like the the little shrine, the memorial at the office. Right. And, you know, she is going through newspapers, trying to figure things out. She has some sort of semblance of her old self, no matter how distorted that is. And so here, like, at the end, this last scene when Nick is just, like, apologizing and was like, I, I was going to try and get you and blah, blah, blah. And, and like, I tried everything I could. Sorry. And then she's just like, what was that normal uh, sentence she yeah, said? Yeah, it was like, let's be the fruit. There you or go. like, you know, we've been saying good weather. And, and then all she says from there on out is, we've been blessed with good weather. We've been blessed with good weather. Like, she's a drone. She's cracked. Yeah. She's cracked it. She's officially she's lost her hold on reality. Yeah. She's been brainwashed effectively, too. I think uh, what I wrote in my notes is like she's become committed to being pious. I think that's how she described uh, first off Glenn, Emily, um, Emily's character when she first meets the, uh, her. She's like, she's so freaking pious. And now she's become the pious one. Yeah. It's just, this, this episode has so many layers, and it really comes down to this theme of guilt, this theme of letting go, bearing that guilt, and this really long psychological game Aunt Lydia has Taking been playing. Taking control. And she, she freaking won. She Aunt did. Fine. Won. I mean, it took a long time, but she did it. It's about three and a half years now. Yeah. I mean, really, I think it's... It's so poignant in a way that is, you know, we make these choices and in what part of ourselves do we give up in order to feel like we don't bear the responsibility of the things that come before us. And there are things I think it's difficult to differentiate as as a person, an individual person in the real world, what guilt um, is you need to let go and what guilt is really just like what you need to learn lessons from in order to learn a lesson from, right? right. Um, she does say, yeah, in order to grow and to remind you of the things that came before and not to repeat your mistakes, mm-hmm. right? And I think um, in that scene at the wall with Alfred and Aunt Lydia, and she says that this whole recurring thing happening from season one when they're indoctrinating them, right. she goes, whose fault is it? And she goes, my fault. She goes, why and she goes to teach me a lesson so like, all why of would these God yeah let this happen to teach me it's, it's all of these intertwining things like how do you make the distinction between what is truly guilty that you shouldn't be guilty of and you should let go and what are the things that like you've seriously fucked up right. but if you find a way to let it teach you a lesson but in this case 
the lesson is, is that she becomes a pious handmaid and we lose this June that we've evolved over how many episodes, you know, how many years we've covered of her journey. And she just became stronger and stronger and stronger to the point that she became stupid. Like, let's yeah. be real, last episode, she was just stupid Betty. Yeah. <laughs> Becky, that was the one, not Betty, Becky. And uh, so, yeah, that... And you then know, already on the lost it. on the forums, far. people are going pretty insane about this episode. I'm not surprised. I mean, yeah. she cracked. Yeah, she's and let's be honest, she did it to herself mm-hmm. with the decisions that she made in the previous episode. She yeah. screwed herself, and she, it's her fault. Mm. Mm. She knows that she messed up on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. She could have gotten out if mm-hmm. she had hidden in the forest long enough. She could have waited for the next plane, not rushed it. I mean, she. There would have been a way yeah, if she had been, been smart about it. But nothing she did was smart. If she had stayed at the, uh, the compromised location because someone was going to come from her, from then on out, she would have been fine. Right. I mean, there's so many different points. She could have fixed her situation. It's her fault. Or just fault. been patient. Yes. It's her fault that she fucked up and she put everyone else's life in line. And now she's right back where she started. It's all her fault. So, yes, I'm not surprised she cracked. Hmm. I'm kind of on the fence because there are two directions you could have gone with this. You could have kept being resistant, which. It looked like she was going to the first, it, for the first really half of the did. episode. It really did. She was trying real hard and she was holding on real strong. And I think maybe the point that the writers and the showrunners are trying to make is that you can only stay so strong for so long. And I think. It's not the last of what we've seen of Strong June. It certainly isn't. I mean, we have much more. <laughs> we have enough episodes to we go. We have much more. But we also have other characters to, to catch up we on. We have a lot of other characters. And also we have a season three. Don't know if you heard, but we're going to get Handmaid season three. Yes. So excited. So there's a lot more ground we're going to cover. And I feel, you know, you sort of get this, uh, what's that word, like a plateau. And so now we've taken back. And so now we have to rebuild. And so... The way that we rebuild is going to be different than the first time that we rebuild. I have no doubt that she will re-rebuild into, you know, a different person again. Yeah, but I think there's a lot of creative ways to go about it. I mean, it could be her rebuilding. It could be someone else that pushes her to rebuild. It could be someone coming in to save the day and kill Gilead. Like, I don't know. Yeah. There's so many different options here. I think that with the, you know, a lot of, you know, people would agree with you that, like, uh, this is June's fault. She says it's my fault. It is her fault. But... I think it is her fault that she didn't stay where she was supposed to and didn't she follow didn't, instructions. Exactly. And the result is, is that people died and got hurt and got killed. However, is it the same then as her letting go of the guilt of breaking up Annie and Luke's divorce? No. How do you even compare this to that? Because that's what they're trying to compare. It's like, oh, it's okay for her to let go of that guilt, but it's not okay for her to let go of this guilt. Because at some point, doesn't she have to let it go to move on? She did not kill the (laughs) ex-wife. There was no death involved there. That's very true. Apples and oranges, people. (laughs) All right. Okay. 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 I just say, I'm on the fence with, like, the whole fault using that terminology in this situation because at the, at some point she's going to have to let this go too in order to move forward. Yeah, and like she there, there were two people to tango when it came to Luke and that ex relationship like very true. Okay, so I I it's apples and oranges at this point. Like you might still be fruit. Huh? It's still guilt, but that's no way comparable. <laughs> <You're> still fruit. <laughs> You're very right. You're very right. Uh yeah, so lots to unpack this episode. Please 
Email us at thehandmaidspodcast at gmail.com. Please look us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash thehandmaidspodcast. You can message me there, comment, um, and uh, let us know. Yeah, buy us coffee. Uh, we have a donation page set up on coffee.com. It's ko-fi.com. $3 buys us a coffee or donate more. Help us support this podcast for sound editing and all that good stuff. Um, and then uh, to end uh, our session today, I wanted to talk about this uh, article I read that really uh, struck me this week. It's by right. uh, Ariel Bernstein for uh, The Guardian uh, publication. And uh, the title of it is The Future Isn't Female Enough, The Problematic Feminism of the Handmaid's Tale. Um, and I'll sort of go through the finer points of this article. Um, but basically, you know, she her entire argument is whether the violence... And the particular um, feminism that the show perpetuates is not really indicative or reflective of uh, where our culture is going, which I think is fair. But at the same time, but does it really matter? It's a comp- it's a different universe. It's a different future. Like, right. Does it have to be indicative of where we're going? No, it's a show. And some of the shows she mentions, um, she says in other shows like True Detective and Game of Thrones, and I also threw in there Westworld. Westworld is very, very violent towards women. I mean, violent in general, but particularly towards women. Absolutely, they're objects. Um, the focus on female debasement is criticized for positioning female suffering as entertainment. So it's really whether we're displaying... Is it entertainment or is it commentary? Right. And so, so much of the violence enacted... Um, on women by women in The Handmaid's Tale, which is a valid point. However, you know, she says that, um, you know, it's less interested in how the patriarchy is perpetuated by men and more upheld by the women. However, I disagree with that point because... I do too. Because if that were true, Serena Joy would be in, like, the government, oh, right? Yeah, she would have if taken the, control. If, if the commanders were like, yeah, sure, She did not just sit down us. and play nice. Like, no. And I guarantee you there was a story there. It was very explicit in episode six, A Woman's Place, that yes. the government, once Gilead took power, was not going to let any women be in any sort of like powerful capacity. Their their role was either to be a wife, to be a handmaid and bear children, or to be a Martha, to be in some sort of servitude that was what to they help felt, run the process that they right initiated. run the world. But none of the decision making. There is no woman in decision making. No, in these forms the rules of are laid out for them. So that's why I disagree with her. However, um, she says you know the, we make these scathing satires of domestic bliss, which I think is true and i addressed this i think in um one of the podcast episodes in season one is that you know there is no one way to be a feminist and there is no one way to be a a woman and there is no one way to be a good wife or a good mother or a good career person or any combination there's no one right way to do any of it so the satire of domestic bliss is is in the fact that like i think the show does a good job of like this is what in the 50s like if you want to relate it to that of what a nuclear family looks like and this is really the pitfalls of that and if you really followed this culture by the letter it makes it more problematic and not less right of the interaction of the wives versus the husbands and um the wives versus you know all the other women in in the culture of this um hierarchical hierarchical structure and you know class and gender she says are arbiters of status which is totally true because if you're a woman I mean, you're yeah. never going to ascend to be that, a commander that's how our world was structured and you know just going back to what we said in the beginning of this podcast about the caste system and 
what's problematic about a caste system is like you're born into your caste and that's it for the rest of your life right like we were born female we weren't born male and we were born you know asian hispanic latino or white not necessarily you know the one that we wanted you know it's not our choice and by a caste system because what makes a problematic is that you are don't have a choice how you were born that your future is sort of like destined from birth and that's what's uh has a lot of chance to move exactly of of what causes a lot of tension in a lot of caste systems and even that's um much less um i don't want to say prevalent but that it's much more relaxed in India now, is that you have a lot of this upward mobility. And that's what um, draws a lot of immigrants to America, frankly, and a lot of you know Western countries, is you have that upward mobility. You're able to come and make do work and, yeah. and, and make a name for yourself and improve your socioeconomic status. Like, it is not a, you know, we all know, let's not pretend that, you know, that's possible for everyone because there are a lot of barriers within that. But, Absolutely. you know, it is... In theory. In theory, it's a me- me- uh, totally possible for any single person to ascend to any social class they want. In theory. Obviously, in reality, that's very difficult to do. But, uh, so class and gender are the arbiters of the status, as she argues, which I do agree with. And she mentioned something that Elizabeth Moss says, um, a quoted of saying last week um, about how, you know, when people say they're too scared to watch a show, and she's like, you know, are you really too scared to watch a TV show? Because this is happening in real life. Thank you. You know, wake up. And that really, I mean, like, I'm with her. But it also frustrated me that the author of this is saying, you know, that some people are too afraid to watch this. Like, like, that's absurd. Like, saying that it's too violent against women. I'm sorry. Have you watched Vikings? Have you watched Game of Thrones? Like, if you're willing to watch every week's episode of that, how is this any worse? I think because The Handmaid's Tale What, because it's somewhat realistic and potentially, like, viable in real life realistic yes absolutely i think that is a lot of her point and also that the handmaid still positions itself as a feminist show and it's become sort of this very prevalent feminist canon you know like this is sort of a depiction of like a cautionary tale but it becomes so much more than that it becomes such an exploration about a lot of human nature right in in this regime and without and, and because you have the juxtaposition of both you're able to explore and, and like dig and dig and dig and get a lot of these very fine nuances of human behavior that you normally wouldn't get to explore because the circumstances are usually not so extreme right they get to be able to set up the circumstances to explain that behavior and then we get to divulge into it and i really like that she also argues um that you know is looking she she asks, is looking at imaginary violence necessary to promote social change? And that some other journalists have okay, I accused know. the show of torture porn. Yeah, so I don't know about torture porn, quote unquote. But, I mean, is it necessary? No. Does it help initiate the conversation and build the conversation and push it in a certain direction? Sure. Is it necessary for us to be talking about it right now? No. Does it potentially help any of our viewers like delve into it? Yes. Yeah. Is it necessary for journalists to go and document the um, torture that's happening over in Kenya? No, 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 it's not. But does it happen? Yes. Is it helpful? Yes. Yeah. Is anything necessary in life? No. So I mean, <laughs> this that argument is moot. <laughs> yeah. And and she doesn't show like you know the bravery of the heroine is intent- intensified by her victimization, and so because 
uh, June goes through such intense torture and psychological, like harrowing psychological torture that, you know, her bravery up until this point and her ability to overcome it is, it, it really is. Um, until the, you know, the end of this episode. Right, she's so, um, And uh, she says that the images don't galvanize viewers that the female experience we feel is inherently painful. And I think that's a very valid phrase. Is, I mean, yeah, but I feel think about childbirth, not it is inherently to, painful. Not to get, like, super spiritualistic on people, <laughs> but, you know, if you know anything about Buddhism, Buddhism argues that existence, mm-hmm. life is inherently painful. Yeah. Life is suffering is one of the main te- tenets of Buddhism. I mean, yeah, it is. Um, so... I agree with her to a point that, like, being female in 2018 in America... I mean, it's still a fight. ...is very, still very painful. I mean, it's not the 1820s by any measure, but it is still a fight. Um, so, she argues that, you know, can you blame women for having endure, to endure misogyny uh, every day in their real lives and they don't want to see it unfold on screen? I mean, yes and no. Mm-hmm. But, I mean... I mean, I, I can't blame them for that statement exactly, but if we're looking at it legitimately at the show, like, the show is not looking at a normal day. It's looking at yeah. uh, a potential future in this fiction tale. Yeah. It's a utop- dystopian, but a idealistically utopian society. But it's a dystopian future. I mean, so what, what's the issue here? It's not reality. I think, uh, you know, she does talk about this bleakness because she says that, you know, uh, when she talks to women about this and watching the show and feeling hopeless. and I can, she, I can understand. I can understand. And, and she argues that, show. Like, like, we have to watch the show, like, as a horrible but necessary kind of medicine. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that statement. But also, like, I've seen bleak shows, bleaker than The Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if anyone re- remembers... Um, it went on for, I think, three or four seasons. It's called The Leftovers on HBO. Yes. And I, it, it, that show is bleak. Like, I couldn't get past, I want to say, episode maybe five, maybe six. I was going to say. I, I definitely I, didn't finish the first season. I finished the first season, and then I never touched it again because it was just too much. It's really bleak. So you don't want to argue about bleakness. Like, I Being feel like that, that was watch. like bleak huh. for bleakness's point. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. That's why I couldn't watch it. Like, it was just like bleak for shitty for point. shitty point. <laughs> At least like Walking Dead, all the shitty things that happen stem from like oh, the reason. undead, right? <laughs> you know, like there's, there, and then of course, you know, Walking Dead fans, I don't discredit you because there's a lot of things that they explore in human nature about that show that, that, that gets brought up. Very Lord of the Flies, right? Yes. So, I this horrible yet necessary medicine and I, I sort of that. and I sort of want to say like yeah it's a horrible but necessary medicine like sometimes I don't want to watch the news and my boyfriend is like yeah you're gonna watch the news because you have to <laughs> yeah but watching the news like it, it's good to be an informed citizen of the world yeah whereas watching this it doesn't necessarily push the world forward and it's not necessarily like the news mm-hmm. I think it's one way to one explore way. an yes. issue Definitely. And at the, at the end of this article, it says, I think that its creators are actively missing what is most exciting about Time's Up and hashtag Me Too. The fact that women are already actively working to imagine a world where it's female pleasure rather than suffering, which is utterly and completely normalized. You know what? 
I don't know how I feel about all of that because I mean, I th- again, this is a dystopian future. We're talking about fiction based off of a novel written how long ago? Mm-hmm. The Times Up and Me Too. That is a those are two new movements, very new movements, mm-hmm. like within the last two years for both of them. Yep. And what she wants us to be a commentary on that? No, this is a commentary in the book. Yeah. I mean, it, it does try to be very relevant, but also it is like, I think hashtag me too might have come out or just been right after they might have wrapped filming the season. I think it so did. before they even filmed the show, it was written for some time before then. Right. right exactly. It, so it was not a commentary on modern female issues. It was a commentary on everyday issues that have existed for a very long time. I do think that the show does do a good job of being current, but I mean, in terms of like, oh, not of our very that. immediate, of our immediate culture of how things, how fast things change. Like, hashtag me too, I think is barely like a year old. Barely. Maybe, yeah, maybe a little bit more than that. Time's up a, a little it's bit even longer newer. than that. What so, was newer? What's that? I thought Time's Up Time, was newer. You are correct. Time's Up is newer. So Time's Up is about a year-ish old, and then Me Too is a little older than that. Yeah. Uh, you are correct. And uh, I just listened to um, NPR on my way over here. It was like a midday with Tom Hall on WYPR uh, here on the East Coast, D.C. area. And uh, he was having a conversation uh, with um, some a theater critic and a theater professional and how he was saying how you know, when TV and movies are made, they take a really long time to make. Not only the Making writing, but relevant the shooting, shooting it's, it's the post, impossible. then you gets distributed and uploaded by the thing and then marketed. Years. It takes a long time. So From conception to end, years. So he argues that, like, you know, theater becomes one of those spaces where you can respond immediately. You can write something, put it on its feet. You can change lines every three days if you needed to. Exactly. So it's... The, the, it was interesting that I listened to that today and we were talking about that today. Like Hamilton. Like, they, yeah. they keep updating little bits and they pieces do. to keep it relevant and to make commentary on every single day things. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, a movie, like, that was... That finished being worked on post about a year ago. Right. There is no way for that to be relevant of the last 12 months. Yeah. And so I agree with uh, Ariel Bernstein that, you know, that we are moving towards where, like, female pleasure and, and ownership of our uh, femininity and all of its forms and even some of its most extreme forms uh, is to, to, to normalize that. And I agree with that. And I agree with that movement. I have nothing against that movement. I'm Absolutely. all for that movement. I, Please. I completely agree. I just had a conversation the other day with um, uh, a mother um, and how uh, if it, there was a situation that came up uh, with her child and I suggested to her that like, Maybe now is time to have the sex talk. Yeah. And she was like, really? Because it just, like, I thought maybe I had a few more years. I was like... How old was her child? Uh, six. Yeah, I mean... And so, I, if you're listening to this to me, and you are totally disagree, that is totally fine. You're but allowed to disagree, but for different my, scenarios, I mean, it's possible. My personal feeling on it, and this is totally a tangent, that we will not go that far down, because we are uh, running out of time uh, for today's episode, but we... I feel like when it comes up is the good time to talk about it. Yeah. Not, like, there isn't, like, a set marker of, like, you're 10, now you are old enough. Yeah. It, it, it really is, like, for, that's my personal opinion. Just me. When it so comes just up, saying. It comes up. <laughs> but 
And I to think talk about it openly and not to make it feel taboo, I think is a very healthy way to approach it too. Yes. And so someone like me, like I am very progressive in these views. So like when I have a child, then I'm going to bring up that next generation of males and females to have this positive uh, outlook on their sexuality. So I think it, it becomes like this generational thing. So I, I do feel like it is very important to move in this direction where we feel that um, female sexuality is completely normalized because then we get to teach that to the next generation and that next generation gets to be gr- grow up um, a lot, le- he- lot healthier sexually um, than the generation before. Because I do feel like, uh, you know, as women, it's part of growing up you know, honestly, like you discover your sexuality and you you figure it out, right? Right. And there aren't. <laughs> I mean, at least There's for me, myself, at least for myself, growing up, you know, I didn't have a lot of guidance. Yeah. And I sort of had to figure it out on my own, and I made a lot of mistakes. Absolutely, we all did. So exactly, and so I feel like if there was more of a conversation back, you know, I'm 30 now, so you know, 15 years ago, right. very different landscape for talking about female sexuality especially for, you know, people in their teens, that um, maybe I wouldn't have made some of the choices that I did make. So that, I think, in the direction going towards that, it becomes, yes, about us as women right now, because it's important to, you know, realize, you know, actualize yourself in, you know, however way you see fit, especially in terms of sexuality, how you feel about that. But, it, but then, to me, it's like the next generation. Right. You know, the more actualized we are and the, the more normal and safe we feel with sexuality, then that just becomes better for teaching the next generation. Absolutely. And everything is a cycle, because I feel like people in the 70s were like, free love, and then... Yeah. But it, it was different. It was different. It was though. different. And we do address that in the last episode with... Um, Jude's mother, how that vibe is totally different and how that vibe doesn't necessarily translate to our culture today. Right. So, all right. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining me this week again, Abigail. Um, And please reach out to us. uh, Tell us all your thoughts, your reviews, your comments for episode four. Lots to unpack here. Um, And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Handmaid's Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Donna Bali. Thanks to Abigail Johnson for joining me this week. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thehandmaidspodcast. You can also email us at thehandmaidspodcast at gmail.com. Buy us a coffee, help us uh, with our uh, production costs, and uh, help support our independent artists at coffee.com, ko-fi.com slash thehandmaidspodcast. We record in the beautiful Logan Media Studios in downtown Baltimore, Maryland. Our music is by bensound.com, and our logo is made by Jeff Lester Cole.